Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 4, New Amsterdam. We've reached Episode 4 of Mad Men's first season. Up to now, the show's tone has been dark and brooding. We've focused on Don Draper and the trail of relationships he leaves in his wake. Much of the narrative has been driven by Don's conflict with his own nature. His narcissism has been used throughout the first three episodes to move his story forward, forcing him into contradictions he struggles to keep tidy. But Mad Men could not have created a compelling story without character antagonists. Don's self-destructive angst is interesting, but it's brought out best when he's set in contrast with other characters. New Amsterdam is Mad Men's attempt to give depth to perhaps the most prominent of these character antagonists, Pete Campbell. Introduced in the pilot episode of the series, Pete Campbell is a junior ad executive played by Vincent Carthizer. In casting Pete, Matthew Weiner wanted an actor with boyish looks, who was overeager and irritating. Carthizer only auditioned for the role of Pete Campbell, arriving at the audition underdressed and under the weather. Casting directors told him to come back after taking a shower, and Carthizer delivered. The pilot wasted no time casting Campbell as an antagonist. He's shown to be inexperienced and indifferent to many of advertising's unwritten rules. And when Don struggles to find an approach for Lucky Strike's advertising issues, Pete jumps in with research he's stolen from Don's trash bin. It's the type of insubordination you'd expect from a young employee trying to make a name for himself. But it immediately confronts Don's ego and desire to be the solution, and it falls flat with the client. Also introduced in Mad Men's first three episodes is an ongoing scandal involving Pete and Peggy Olson. He's shown entering her apartment drunk on the night of his bachelor party. Later, Peggy yearns for any word from him during his honeymoon, stealing a postcard he addressed to the office and hiding it in her desk drawer. Pete returns with a refreshed optimism about marriage, and he tells Peggy that what happened between them meant nothing to him. After the first few episodes, viewers began to loathe Pete for his brazen self-interest. Pete's clearly striving for importance in the business world, and is perhaps overly eager to be trustworthy. He's snide, direct, often too arrogant to realize how poorly he treats other people, and he's willing to do anything to reach the top, including betraying the loyalty of other Sterling Cooper executives. But strong writing seeks to motivate its characters, especially the ones we despise. Because as much as viewers love to hate Pete, his antagonism lacked depth or impetus. Storytelling establishes a connection between the writer and the audience. Underlying this connection is buy-in, believability. The best stories make their characters so familiar that we come to view their actions as the conclusion of something already known. In New Amsterdam, Mad Men takes its first step towards building our familiarity with Pete Campbell. Critical to our understanding of a character is our ability to empathize, to view the character's motivations as somehow connected to our own experience. Much of this episode shows Pete involved in relatable situations, with disapproving parents, dinner at the in-laws, insubordination at work. Showrunner Matthew Weiner even pulled from his own childhood to guide scenes from this episode. The end result is a more humanized, more understandable version of the show's hate-inspiring junior ad man. The episode opens in Pete's office as the young Sterling Cooper executives listen to The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart, a live comedy album released in May 1960. Campbell's wife, Trudy, arrives at the office, meeting Pete's co-workers as Pete stands by, surprised. 
Trudy Campbell's role remained uncast while Mad Men's first episodes were filmed. It was eventually given to Alison Brie, who had recently graduated from college. It was only her second TV role, and the casting process lasted long enough that she continued to audition for other parts. When the show offered to make her a regular character, she declined to work on other projects, most notably NBC's sitcom Community. But according to Brie, the Community producers were Mad Men fans, and they allowed her enough flexibility to appear in 38 episodes of the series. Brie brought a free-spiritedness to Trudy, often setting her in contrast with Pete's high-strung anxieties. She's portrayed as carefree and kind, softening the worst of Pete's behavior. At the office, Trudy announces that she's come to surprise Pete and intends to take him apartment shopping. As they leave, Don and Peggy walk past. Pete introduces them to Trudy, and Don compliments Pete, saying he's essential to the process. Peggy and Pete share an awkward glance before he moves to leave with Trudy, who whispers that Don isn't anything like she imagined. This is perhaps a necessary moment in New Amsterdam. The first several episodes have relied heavily on Don and Peggy's perspective. An episode focused on Pete must remind us why we care. And as Pete squirms with awkwardness in this scene, Mad Men reminds us of his past wrongs by showing the two characters he's hurt the most. Trudy takes Pete on a tour of a New York City apartment. She muses excitedly about the apartment and what it could mean for her and Pete. But Pete is skeptical and asks Trudy how they will afford the payments on his $75 per week salary. Trudy insists that Pete will make more money eventually, and that they will get a mortgage, saying, we're just a young couple who need a little help. Meanwhile at the office, Don runs into Paul Kinsey and Rachel Mencken, dressed notably in all black. This is another scene inserted to revisit previous stories, and Don's uncomfortable conversation with Rachel makes clear that she's still upset over his rejection. Don asks her out to lunch, but Rachel rejects. Later that evening, Betty reads her children a bedtime story. Sally Draper asks where her father is, but Betty tells her to go to sleep. She strolls down her neighborhood street with the Draper's dog, and is accosted by a man who bangs on Helen Bishop's door. He pleads with Betty, asking to use her phone, but she's unsettled and insists that she doesn't allow strangers into her home. Helen later visits Betty to apologize but Betty insists that she has nothing to apologize for. Betty invites Helen to stay, and Helen begins to talk about her failed marriage and her husband's infidelity. Helen is straightforward and expresses mixed sentiments about her divorce, noting that her ex-husband is not a bad man. Betty, however, refuses to reveal anything but superficiality. In reviewing this episode, this was a recurring motif. New Amsterdam repeatedly shows characters repressing their feelings for the sake of etiquette. I think what Mad Men strives to demonstrate here is a dissatisfaction that arises when people stifle their genuine feelings. This episode is most overtly a study of the old money and new money divisions within society. Breaking along similar lines is the conflict between authenticity and restraint. And it's those who express their desires that seem the most satisfied. Helen, Trudy, and even at times Don. The same night, Pete Campbell visits his parents to ask them for money. His father, Andrew Campbell, played by Christopher Allport, is an austere man who sits drinking scotch and making small talk. He criticizes Pete's work, comparing him to a pimp. Pete becomes irritated, telling his father that he doesn't understand the advertising business. He tells his father about the apartment and asks for help with the down payment, but his father refuses. 
Pete then brings up his older brother, Bud, who struck a woman in a car accident. He speculates that helping Bud out of trouble must have cost his father significantly. Pete moves to leave, disappointed, and asks why his family is so reticent to help him. But his father looks up and says, We gave you everything. We gave you your name. And what have you done with it? Everything about this scene feels formal, over-the-top, dressed up. The Campbell's living room is expansive, with heavily decorated paneled walls. A glass chandelier hangs from the ceiling. Luxurious furniture is scattered throughout the set, and the sofa is draped in a cloth covering. Pete's father sits in a sport jacket, sipping scotch. He's judgmental, with old-fashioned expectations that Pete's work clearly violates. It all adds up to an idea that Pete comes from old money, that he embodies privilege, with values handed down through generations. And this explains why Pete often exhibits a sense of entitlement. He's used to a life of ease. It also motivates some of Pete's behavior. Pete doesn't smoke cigarettes. He's discreet, adhering more often to his practice manners than to social cues. And he's insulted when his father implies that his job is sinful. But despite Pete's conservative upbringing, he's imbued with the impetus of a young man. He understands that generational change is happening, and he's observant enough to see his advantage running out. The scene was inspired by a conversation Matthew Weiner witnessed in his childhood, and its depiction of fatherly disappointment feels familiar. But most importantly, it casts Pete in a helpless dilemma. Along with his privilege comes expectations. Pete Campbell is an unfulfilled promise, and he sees a successful career as a way to make good on that promise. As he endeavors to live up to his family's expectations, his self-interested behavior becomes more monstrous. But despite his success, his father still views him as a disappointment. There's a feeling of futility in Pete's dialogue with his father, that no amount of success or wealth would change his mind. And as Pete's father turns sterner, we begin to see Pete less as a privileged brat and more as a young man trying to live up to his family's expectations. As he and Trudy get ready for bed in the next scene, Pete lies to her, telling her that he never brought up the down payment for fear of upsetting his father's health. When Trudy asks what's wrong with his father, Pete simply says, no one knows. The next day, Pete, Don, and Sal pitch a campaign to Walter Vaith of Bethlehem Steel. The campaign shows a series of cities illustrated in bold colors with the words, New York City, brought to you by Bethlehem Steel. But Vaith, played by Randy Oglesby, is from rural Pennsylvania and sees the idea as unappealing, saying, I might be wrong, but these feel like ads for cities. You're making our company look like a middleman for another product. Don is taken aback by this and tells Walter that the campaign is very similar to what they discussed over the phone. Pete suggests Walter stay and tells Don to come up with something different. As Walter exits, Don confronts Pete, who says that he's always had great ideas. But Don suggests that Pete stick to his job of managing clients. Pete tells him that Sterling Cooper is the first place where he's heard that he's good with people, implying that he perhaps has a different importance within the agency. Later at the Draper's suburban home, Don lays on the sofa working on new ideas for Bethlehem Steel while Betty prepares dinner. She's interrupted by a phone call from Helen Bishop, who's headed to volunteer for John Kennedy's campaign and asks if Betty will babysit her children. Betty looks nervously at Don before agreeing to help. Betty finds the Bishop home messy and unconventional. She's reintroduced to Glenn Bishop, 
played by Martin Weiner, Matthew Weiner's son. Glenn is a shy nine-year-old boy, the son of divorcee Helen Bishop. He's shown playing the piano when Betty arrives and is reminded by his mother not to play while his younger sister is sleeping. Helen scrambles to find her shoes and leaves hurriedly as Betty stands befuddled. We've already seen subtle comparisons formed between Betty and Helen. They're both educated, about the same age, with boy and girl children. Betty affords Helen perhaps more than neighborly courtesy, out of intrigue and perhaps pity over her single motherhood. And in trying to manage her obligations, Helen leans on Betty's willingness to help. But New Amsterdam shows stronger contrast between Betty and Helen. In this first scene at Helen's home, we see Betty look on judgmentally as Helen rushes to leave. The house is a mess, especially to Betty, whose life centers around homemaking. But Helen's life is more complicated. She balances motherhood with her work and political interests. There's a naivete in Betty's reactions throughout this scene that paints her as simple, almost childlike. She's even playing the part of the teenage babysitter. Betty tells Glenn Bishop to watch television and heads to the bathroom. She shuts the door and looks through the drawers before trying to undo her girdle in the cramped space. As she sits on the toilet, she sees Glenn through the keyhole of the bathroom door. He opens it and stands watching her. She shouts at him and moves to close the door in his face. Upon returning to the living room, she demands that Glenn say he's sorry. He grows upset and begins sobbing as he apologizes, and Betty moves next to him, hugging him as she reassures him. Unprompted, Glenn tells Betty that she's beautiful, that she looks like a princess. He eventually asks Betty for a lock of her hair, and Betty, now standing near the piano, cuts a small piece and grants it to him. We talked about how her scenes with Helen highlight Betty's naivete. Her friendship with Glenn Bishop further reinforces this idea. Betty is very childlike, accepting Glenn's compliments as genuine, fearful of hurting his feelings. She refuses to discipline or say no to him, and even talks and sits similar to a little girl. It's revealing how little authority Betty has in her interactions with a nine-year-old boy. And perhaps more shockingly, she seems to enjoy his attention. Meanwhile, Pete Campbell has dinner with Trudy and his in-laws. Trudy's parents, much like her, are warm and down-to-earth. Her father, Tom Vogel, works as an executive at Vicks Chemical. Tom and his wife, Jeannie, heap praise on Pete for his work. Trudy eventually reveals that she's found her dream apartment, describing it dreamily until her father offers to help pay for it. Pete is uncomfortable accepting the money, but his father-in-law insists. Riding home in a taxi, Pete angrily declares that he doesn't want to owe money to Trudy's parents, but she dismisses his concern and says that all that matters is that they have the apartment. It's an interaction that drips with the desperation of not wanting to be like your parents, but instinctually embodying their values and beliefs, as Pete seems to take accepting the money as an insult, becoming resentful. Later that evening, Pete returns to the same restaurant, this time to entertain Walter Vaith. He introduces Vaith to some young women and pitches his own line, Bethlehem Steel, the backbone of America. Vaith is obviously impressed and asks Pete if this was Don's idea all along. But before Pete can respond, Walter tells him to get off the clock, growing more intrigued by the young ladies they've met. Late that night, Betty returns home with one of Helen's John F. Kennedy pamphlets. She finds Don asleep, a notebook beside him. Before she moves to turn the light off, she grabs the notebook and sees Don's scribblings on the page that read, New York, 
O Little Town of Bethlehem. The next morning opens in Sterling Cooper's conference room, with Don and Sal standing over hand-drawn renditions of Don's new idea. It's one of the few times we see hand-drawn artwork pitched to a client, a detail dictated by advertising consultants, who claim there would have been no time to create finished drafts. Don pitches his O Little Town of Bethlehem idea, but Walter rejects it, bringing up the Backbone of America concept that Pete had proposed the night before. Bethlehem Steel, the Backbone of America. Wasn't that it? Ah, right. It's concise, strong, and frankly, I like that you were so enthusiastic about it, you couldn't wait to tell me. After escorting Walter out of the office, Pete returns to the conference room. He grins, satisfied with his success, but Don ignores him, his anger filling the room. It's understandable that Don would react this way. He's been blindsided by Pete's actions, forced to improvise in front of a client with an idea that Pete didn't share. By doing this, Pete's broken the rules of advertising, namely, that account men don't pitch their own copy. But most importantly, he's broken rank with Don, who considers himself superior. Breaking the silence, Don sarcastically congratulates Pete, who points out that the backbone of America idea won the business, saying, You know what I think? I think I did something good and you got the compliment for it. But to Don, Pete has broken an unbreachable rule of advertising. He's put Don in a position where he's not in control, where success isn't based on his creative work. And this is threatening to Don, who views himself as Pete's superior, whose self-worth is tied to his creative brilliance at work. So after a momentary pause, Don replies, Listen, Pete, I need you to go get a cardboard box, put your things in it, okay? Don stalks angrily out of the conference room as Pete stands, terrified, with Sal casually breaking his silence to observe. You picked the wrong time to buy an apartment. Don bursts angrily into Roger Sterling's office, announcing that he intends to fire Pete and telling Roger what Pete has done. Roger sides with Don, and the two men walk through the office and remove their shoes before entering Burt Cooper's extravagant, Japanese-styled office. A picture hangs on the wall showing Roger in childhood with his adult father and Bert Cooper. Cooper invites them to sit, and they discuss Campbell's actions. But when Roger mentions firing Pete, Cooper curtly dismisses the idea. Don and Roger are outraged, but Cooper explains that Pete is the grandson of Dorothy Dykeman, a member of New York's wealthy and highly connected social elite. Much of this story is borrowed from history. William Dykeman was a prominent landowner in what is now New York City. To this day, Dykeman Street in Inwood retains his name, and the Dykeman Farmhouse, constructed in 1785, is the oldest in Manhattan. As Cooper explains how firing Pete would damage his agency's reputation with prospective upscale clients, Don becomes upset and suggests that Pete is more valuable. Remember that Don's self-worth is tied to his work. He strives toward self-determinism, and is surrounded by people who rarely challenge his authority. And this instills in Don a precarious idea that he is in control. But when he sees the value of Pete's family name, Don realizes that he has no similar intrinsic value, that his importance is fleeting, and that he has no true superiority over Pete. Cooper reassures him, saying that there are boys similar to Pete in every ad agency, 
but it feels as though Cooper would say that about any employee. Cooper suggests that Don stop acting petty and asserts that Pete will remain with the agency. His jolly demeanor forms a haunting contrast with the power he exudes over two of the show's more authoritative characters, Don and Roger. Pete, meanwhile, sits in his office, terrified, sobbing, drinking from a bottle of whiskey. Roger enters, and he jumps to attention, standing as stiff as a soldier as Roger berates him. Don stands by the door silently, shocked. Roger explains to Pete that he would have been fired if not for Don's protestations. I want you to be very clear about this. You were fired. I wanted you out. Cooper wanted you out. And you would be if it weren't for this man. He thought you deserved another chance. That's right. He fought for you. Pete's subservience seems enthusiastically renewed as Roger continues, recommending that Pete follow Don's lead and do exactly as he says, leading to some of the funniest dialogue of Mad Men's first season. Now, I know that your generation went to college instead of serving, so I'll illuminate you. This man is your commanding officer. You live and die in his shadow. Understood? I won't let you down, Don. Jesus, Campbell. Don't ever say that. The same day, Betty Draper meets with her psychiatrist, Dr. Arnold Wayne, and talks about Helen Bishop. She expresses concern about Helen's children, mentioning Glenn and saying that he's not getting what he needs from his mother. These comments aptly portray Betty's own situation, and her inability to confront her problems, even in front of a therapist, shows her emotional childishness. Later that evening, Don shares a drink with Roger, discussing Pete Campbell. Roger advises Don to stop competing with Pete, but Don cuts through Roger's false authority, noting that he is powerless even in his own agency. As the episode closes, we see Pete and Trudy in their new apartment, meeting their neighbors. Trudy excitedly recants stories about Pete's wealthy family as Pete walks away, the conversation fading while he looks out the window at the first CGI shot used in Mad Men, a panorama of New York City at night. New Amsterdam is perhaps an homage to Pete's past and a foreshadowing of his future. Its title recalls the name of the Dutch settlement in southern Manhattan, a prominent point of historical reference for Pete's family, and it alludes to Pete's new home in New York City. The episode expands significantly on Pete's character, giving him more prominence than in any previous episode, and shows Pete struggling to assert power over those around him, from his judgmental father to his wife Trudy and her overbearing parents to Don Draper. These conflicts aren't new to Mad Men, They've been portrayed over the last several episodes. But New Amsterdam flips the perspective, framing things through Pete's point of view, showing us Pete's married life, Pete's family, and Pete's emotional crises. The end result is a far more nuanced antagonist with relatable motivations. Through these hopeless conflicts, we begin to understand Pete more clearly, even sympathetically, and we begin to judge Pete's actions less as objectively right or wrong. Most prominent is Pete's continued conflict with Don Draper. The privilege of Pete's upbringing and its impact on the politics at Sterling Cooper upset Don's ideas about authority and perhaps force him to confront his own childhood. Mad Men has made several allusions to Don's past, but New Amsterdam makes no attempts to resolve them, opting instead to contrast Don with Pete. It's a subtextual way to build intrigue about Don's unresolved past, 
We speculate about Don's upbringing because the episode focuses so heavily on Pete's. By the end of New Amsterdam, we see Pete, perhaps reborn, his betrayal of Don, hour-long firing, and salvation almost biblical, instilling in Pete a hopeful sentimentality that carries through the end of the episode. Even Trudy's whimsical storytelling, mostly improvised, adds to the feeling of hope we're left with after the final scene, which fades to the song Manhattan by Ella Fitzgerald. It seems clear from the optimism of the final scene that Mad Men has a future in mind for Pete's character, leaving him perhaps renewed through his survival, with a new wife, a new apartment, and a newfound permanence at Sterling Cooper. Hi everyone, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.